Hello and welcome, Deborah Eden Tull. Thank you so much for being here at the Flowering Lotus Meditation Podcast. We invited you here today because you're going to be doing a retreat in October in Bay St. Louis. So we wanted to talk to you a little bit about what people can expect, who you are as a teacher, and um, really have a conversation around what the theme of the retreat is. Beth, I'm grateful to be here with you and really looking forward to that retreat. The theme that weekend is Kalyanamita, really an invitation to deepen it in the practice of relational mindfulness. So it will be a unique retreat where we'll be held in a sacred container of silence and having plenty of time and space for silent meditation and contemplation. And we will also be engaging in relational mindfulness or relational meditation in our group sessions where we come together. And this is based from my second book, Relational Mindfulness, a handbook for deepening our connection with ourself, each other, our planet. And, oh, I love these practices so much. Relational mindfulness is really a set of practices and principles, nine principles for supporting us in waking up together in the relational field. And I'll just say upfront, Beth, that it was in the transition from living as a Zen Buddhist monastic for seven and a half years to suddenly living out in uh, the city of Los Angeles of all places, uh, shifting into lay practice and lay teaching. And it was such a dramatic transition. And I also sense the transformational uh, healing invitation of it. And so very quickly, as I was both teaching people who I could tell were hungry for more of a bridge between their sitting meditation and how they show up to the relational field, to conversation, to socializing, to work, to family, to dating, it doesn't matter what domain, um, that so many people need this medicine. So each of the principles came to me very clearly in that time and the impact has been profound. We have an extraordinary, continually deepening and widening community of people practicing and also guiding relational mindfulness. And I think the last thing I'll say right now is that if we look around and recognize, and I think so many of our hearts are tender about this, that there is such a tear in the fabric of human relationship right now, such a divisiveness. Uh, beyond anything I've seen in my lifetime. We recognize the invitation of this practice and the opportunity to really let our understanding and embodiment of meditation go so much further than something I do for personal awakening on the cushion to a daily life, everyday opportunity for collective awakening. You with me? Yes, thank you so much for that explanation, because I think a lot of times when we talk about going on retreat or going away to do the practice, there's this separation. And I think that, you know, it's almost like I'm this way here in the retreat, but then when I go back, I just come back to my normal way of life. And so, you know, 
what what are the some of the practices that you you know encourage people to try to be able to make that bridge to be able to understand that like all of it is interconnected and like that isn't separate yeah yeah thank you um just in bringing curiosity to the ways we perceive the illusion of that separation the ways we've supported that narrative or story and the harm that is caused even down to the notion of oh i can engage in a certain way with sangha but then not with people outside of sangha or that messy other human world i encourage people to really have a strong personal practice a strong and open-hearted sangha and then to take the next step and practice seeing the world as our sangha really letting daily life be our laboratory but i think i would share that I can speak about the nine principles, but I'll emphasize one of them and the real foundation for relational mindfulness is about living in deep listening, about recognizing meditation as a practice of listening to life as it unfolds moment by moment, dropping more into the often hidden strength and resilience and generosity of our receptivity, of our receptive nature, that when we are listening, and I consider deep listening an opportunity to go beyond the kind of shallow listening, that means we're giving our attention to believing the stories of superficial mind, of what I call the mind of separation, um, believing our every thought, <laughs> believing we are our thoughts, and dropping down into our bodies in a richer way. We're learning to listen to life as it unfolds. And we're able to listen much more deeply to our interior, to our hearts, to the guidance within, which by the way, tends to speak to us softly. And so sometimes I use the metaphor around deep listening because for sustainability and our connection with the earth is a big part of my work as a dharma teacher and many years ago decades ago about three decades ago i had the opportunity to study the health of coral reefs and people listening might already be well aware that we're losing many of the earth's coral reefs that they've been under great threat and harm for a long time and one of the things that happens is a reef is a living organism that can extend for hundreds and thousands of miles and maintain its systems of communication and maintaining itself and protection through subtle vibrations. But when a loud, noisy motorboat comes to the surface of the waters, just that can disrupt the reef's capacity to hear its own subtle vibration. Now, painful as that is to hear, I think it's a perfect metaphor for our own relationship to the conditioned mind and to deep listening. We lose touch with our capacity to meet life with discernment, to see clearly, to see beyond our identification with limiting beliefs. And this is like the impact of the loud motorboat, our conditioned mind. So we need help. We need to learn how to bring deep listening to everything. Yeah. 
and deep listening is the most subtle form of love there is. Paying attention, attention is the most subtle form of love. So I'll pause there. <laughs> Thank you, yes. I feel like a lot of times we're in this habitual kind of, like you said, the loud noise of what's going on around us and it's hard to have that opportunity to have quiet or go deeper, as you said. Um, can you say anything about what to expect at this retreat as far as, um, you know, we're going to be doing silent meditation and then how would we practice this relational part of like, will we be talking to each other a little bit or not really, or is it more conceptual or actual practice? Thank you. It's actual practice. And for people for whom it might be your first opportunity, being in a container of silence, where of course meals will be eaten in silence, you'll have plenty of space for connecting with the earth in silence for just being, and we'll come together in group and engage in formal practices that are very rich and beautiful meditations that often involve being in a pair or a triad or a small group. And in some of them, we're listening in particular ways to one another. We're practicing mindful inquiry, which is a rich part of relational mindfulness, thinking of inquiry as questions we ask and allow response to arise through insight, through information that comes through our body-mind in the moment, rather than asking a question and going to find conclusion or listening in an extractive way where we're looking for something. Um, some people might have had experience with insight dialogue and there's some overlap in some of this. There are practices also where we're um, with one another I don't want to give too much away about the practices, but, <laughs> you know, one of the things I'll share is that a lot of us have been conditioned, not just to hold a separation between meditation over here and like the social relational field over here, but to hold a duality that says, uh, I can rest and empty and be in non-doing when I'm meditating. But in that social field or with people, that takes effort. We've been fed conditioned, made up notions that connection requires effort. Things like social etiquette that carries a lot of weight and pressures and rules and shoulds do it. Uh, Self-consciousness that comes into play. This is really based on the deeper knowing that folks, who and what we are is interconnection, is non-separation. Intimacy arises naturally, effortlessly, when we empty, when we drop into spacious presence. No effort required. It's who we already are. We leave it, but it never leaves us. And so these are practices that allow us to drop into that field to receive a nourishment that is so deep and a clarity that is so deep that we can then bring back into our everyday life. And again, our relationship with ourselves, with each other and with the earth, they're all impacted, right? Exactly. Yes. And we need that kind of guidance from someone that has the experience to be able to help us get there. 
because when we're in our busy everyday lives, it's something that I almost want to say it's dismissed, you know, it's not kind of thought of as like an important aspect of the way we relate to others. Um, So I think that's really amazing that you're pointing that out and that you're willing to teach people about that. And just like anything, we're almost undoing the kind of conditioning that we've had by doing practices together, I guess. You've got it. And it's also important to recognize that the relational field is an opportunity for tremendous healing, for healing that is ancestral, for healing that is bigger than we can conceptualize. We all have our own triggers in the relational field, things we take personally, emotions that get triggered, dynamics that are difficult for us. If we continue to sort of turn away from them rather than turn towards, if we continue to not have the practice tools, the Dharma tools under our belt to meet them with compassion as opportunities. We miss something big. And if we learn those tools, it's phenomenal (laughs) how much we get to see, oh, this was an invitation for self-compassion that I had not recognized before. This is a part of me who's always been sort of left out or whose need has not been met that this trigger is giving me an opportunity to know how to meet. So it's profoundly healing. Yeah. Shall I share some of the principles so as not to overwhelm people? And we'll be focusing on just a handful of these in the fall retreat, though there's opportunity to learn about all of them. The first is as simple as intention, acknowledging before, during, and after any our heart's intention to remember who and what we really are, to use our life experience to awaken. And this might seem really simple, but it's important because each and every one of us has an ego, egocentric karmic conditioning, uh, which has its own intentions or agendas. (laughs) And those can be something like, I'm here talking with you, Beth, maybe the ego agenda could be Oh, I want to be liked. I want to get your approval. I want to be right and make sure you're wrong. <laughs> I want to get attention. I want whatever it is. We all have the, had those experiences and that ego agenda can take us away from the heart's intention, right? And so the next is the sacred pause. This is relevant to our entire Dharma practice pausing as often as we can, learning to live in the pause, the space between our thoughts, the space between the breath, the spaciousness in which we remember a more dropped in interconnected presence. And in the pause, we also get a chance to notice what am I giving my attention to right now? That's just not true for me. That's not helpful. What thought train am I starting to feed that I'd like to in this pause kind of step back from, okay? And that moves us into deep listening, which I spoke a bit about, mindful inquiry and clear seeing, really learning to inquire into, as an example, is what I'm being told in my mind right now. It's what I'm being told by the conditioned mind 
actually true, actually worth my attention? Is it leading to more compassion or to more suffering? And knowing how to step back. A few of the other principles are transparency, learning to speak the in the moment truth, learning to speak from our heart, turning towards rather than away, not taking personally, a really poor practice in, in Dharma, taking responsibility for what is ours, I'd say passionate responsibility, and compassionate action. So those every time I share them, and they light me up. I've seen myself and others go through such a deep transformation through living these principles. Anything come um, up? I haven't read that book yet, and I really need to before the retreat. I've read um, Luminous Darkness. I have a tiny bit left to read at the very end, um, but I really enjoyed that book. And um, we actually have a code that we can give people through Shambhala for a discount for that book. So um, I'm excited to share that with our listeners and with our Sangha so that people can even get to know you, I think, as a Dharma teacher, because I feel like Luminous Darkness has a lot of biographical information in it, I think. Yes. yes. Um, I really enjoyed how you met your husband, that story. It's like that, that, um, it was just like meant to be in that way of like all the different things that came together to make that possible. Very romantic. <laughs> well, maybe we'll share that story, but I'd like to first just say, uh, I'm grateful to know that you can offer a discount for folks for that book and the teachings from Luminous Darkness, which are really also all about Kalyanamita, spiritual friendship ourselves, with the earth, with each other, these will also be woven into this retreat, um, woven into every retreat that I guide, and we'll be gathering in the fall, the time of the darkening of the sky, the shortening of the days. so it's a beautiful time to be meet, meeting the um, earth's darkness together, yeah? Uh, shall I share that fun story? How yes. much? <laughs> sure, definitely. It was some years after I had uh, left life at the monastery and I share in relational mindfulness, especially just how it was to go from living as a monastic to reintegrating into the world, not just of socializing, but dating and romance and partnership. And there is so much richness that I've solid dharma practice gives us to bring to the relational field so i really hope people will lean into that um but when i was oh what, 10 years ago actually and i was leading a retreat in ojai california which is a place i spent a lot of time as a kid and a very magical place some of you listening might know and I had a dream, the final night of the retreat, that said, you are supposed to be living here right now. You're not supposed to leave Ojai after this retreat. You're supposed to stay here. There's something you need that's medicine here, and there's medicine you have for this place. And it was a very powerful, uh, clear signal dream, like a dream that shakes you you wake up from it and you say, well, what was that all about? Because I was living in Portland at the time and I was paying rent and establishing life and Sangha there. And this dream though, shook me to the core and was very much a spiritual messenger. So 
I woke up wondering about it and within an hour received a text from my landlord saying, uh, Eden, I decided to sell the house that you're renting. So you're going to need to find a new place to live. And within another hour, a friend in Ojai texted and said, any chance you'd like to house it for us for a few months? Well, we go away, everything lined up and it was just one of those, okay, all right, the life I thought I was living this coming year ain't happening. <laughs> I'm going to be in Ojai. And um, my very first day um, of being in Ojai, I went on a walk uh, in town and I saw a flyer up on a, bill, a board, community board, for a conscious dance, conscious movement gathering that night. And that's one of my loves and invited a couple girlfriends and went and met the man facilitating the gathering who facilitated it so beautifully. And that's Mark, and that's how I met my husband. And I just knew immediately, oh my gosh, this is why I was called here. And so it's really lovely, isn't it? When uh, life is that direct with us, yeah. Yeah, and you have to be like open to it. And also you followed those messages as far as, you know, I think sometimes you, we might receive things and, you know, talk ourselves out of it. You know, so I feel like you really were open to that. And yes. like you said, quite straightforward well, what you were supposed to do. Mark and I lived in Ojai for about five years together and loved it, but knew we were going to be moving to another place. Uh, just the impact of climate change there, uh, some of our hopes for starting a center one day that can't happen in a place as economically challenging as California. So we, we finally decided we would move to North Carolina, where we are now and where, in fact, we uh, will be uh, in coming years opening up an Ecodharma Center. And we both had a series of dreams that were very, very intense about a fire coming through Ojai. And the dream message was, your time to move is now. Like, we were going to wait, move now. <laughs> so we packed our car. We moved out here, and two weeks later, the Ojai fires came through and came through our neighborhood first. Oh so I guess a little sideline of this uh, podcast recording is uh, paying attention to dreams. Yeah, not ever in a superstitious way, uh, not ever in a making meaning way, but open when we get clear messages. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um. Let's go back to the word Kalyanamita. Could you kind of expound upon that a little bit? Yes, Kalyanamita translates to spiritual friendship. And the way this teaching traditionally comes through is the quality of friendship between a teacher and student or a mentor and mentee in which the mentor is committed to the bone, to seeing clearly the mentee to recognizing that all human beings have true nature and all human beings also have ego or conditioning and to clearly keep our eye on the ball of helping the mentee to see and to know and to recognize their true nature and which also means to practice not judging <laughs> the ego we don't ever want to ego bash we're just learning and practice how to live in a harmonious 
integrated way with our ego and to allow the heart to be in the driver's seat rather than ego, right? So this kind of quality of friendship that is really a practice of non-judgment and of assisting to see and know one's true nature is a way of being we can bring into all of our friendships. It doesn't just stay with mentor-mentee. It's a way we can practice together in Sangha, and many people listening know the experience of relief uh, that we feel in Sangha due to this quality. It's something that we must bring as practitioners to our relationship with ourselves, really helping this human to recognize, to know, to live from true nature um, alongside that we all have ego, yeah? And so there is so much healing that is possible for each of us through Kalyanamita. And it really is a deep inquiry into how to live through compassion for all beings. We extend Kalyanamita to the realm of the ancestors, to those who came before us, to those who left us this legacy of capitalism, colonialism, patriarchy, um, a disconnect from the earth, rather than judgment, we can meet that too with Kalyanamita. Um, there's so much application for spiritual friendship in today's world. And just to underline, like, I don't know about you, but with all that we're navigating, we need our spiritual friends. We need to know how to show up to nurture that quality of friendship. Does that resonate with you in your life? Definitely, definitely. I feel like it it resonates with the first thing that we talked about, about the separateness of saying like, okay, these are my Dharma friends. And then these are like the people I deal with in my real life. You know, I think early in my practice, I really was separating the two and not um, even... I mean, honestly, not even inviting people that I thought was, I was already judging like, oh, they wouldn't want to come to a retreat or they wouldn't want to come to a sit, you know? And so really realizing that all should be included, all should be invited in. And, you know, you never really know what, how, what kind of impact that's going to have on other people. So my practice being an example of, you know, invitation and really offering different things that I've experienced as a you know practitioner to others so and and I, I lead a community meditation in Jackson so I've really witnessed it and rotating out leaders of the practice and really seeing what that has done for people in this community is just making something accessible that they didn't even know existed so it's been really beautiful in that way thank you beautiful yeah and when I first um began working on relational mindfulness on that book project, you know, I was living and teaching in LA and just recognized uh, there were a few different evenings where we would gather for Sangha and people could also just come off the street. And in addition to the power of meditating, so many people found themselves in tears at being invited into these opportunities for really being deeply listened to and deeply listening to another these opportunities for relational meditation and it was like oh my gosh people having a recognition that 
they were hungry for so much more of this in their lives that they hadn't even recognized the, um, again, as you put it, the separation, the line they were creating in their mind between meditating and the human realm. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Yeah. And I feel like that's something that happens at flowering Lotus retreats is just this kind of astonishment of this availability of the practice. And, um, you know, sometimes I've heard people go like, this is happening in Mississippi. Like what? Like, it's just almost when you were talking about Ojai and LA and I feel like that the practice is really available, you know, or maybe not always available, but there's a lot more Dharma centers and, you know, retreat centers and teachers out there. And so I kind of do have a question about, you know, you moved to North Carolina, how are you finding it as far as that goes, as far as practitioners and, you know, having a Sangha or group of people there? Thank you. Yeah, well, let's see. Uh, It's been an extraordinary place to be. I spent some time here when I was a lot younger when I was in my 20s at a place called Penland School of Crafts and kind of fell in love with the land here. And so also have some uh, some of my ancestors here. And it's been extraordinary to connect with this land and this community and also to kind of pop outside of a sort of, um, oh, kind of bubble on the West Coast, I would say, of Here's what conscious people are engaged in. Um, And I would say that right now, more of my teaching still happens online because I have Sangha, people who gather from all over the country and all over the world together. And we've also been starting to connect more, to offer more gatherings here. We recently had a retreat at Southern Dharma that was extraordinarily beautiful. And so our vision has been to um, begin to form a center here for eco-dharma and for this practice of relational mindfulness. And we have some phenomenal support. So I am committed to not having a linear timeline for that yet. It's got to be about when life dictates. And right now I'm aware of having a pretty full dharma plate, but we're starting to seed the vision. So that's great. And, you know, Ever since I lived at the monastery and my teacher would send us out to to teach in different parts of the country, I've simply been touched and transformed continually by the universality of Dharma, the universality of spiritual friendship. And we need more bridges now to universality in a world where there is just so much division. And this type of person, you're that type, I believe this, you believe that, so we must be oppositional to each other. Um, we need to address it. Collectively, it needs to be addressed. And that means it's each of our responsibility as meditators to do our work in addressing this. And it's joyful work. <laughs> Healing that divide, right, is joyful work because it's just not true nature. To see through division and to see through duality, it's delusion. Yeah. Yeah. 
Thank you so much. I think you're so right. I feel like this is a great ending point to invite people to come and see what it's all about and meet you and be able to practice with you in October in Bay St. Louis. You'll also be doing a Dharma talk at Sama Studio. And so we're excited for that opportunity for people that can't come to the retreat. But really, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you um, very much for taking the time to answer some questions. And um, we'll be sharing, you know, as much as we can about you. And if you have Dharma talks online, sharing that with our um, Sangha as well, so that people can get to know you more and hopefully come to the retreat. Thank you so much, Beth. It's been really lovely to be here with you. And if anyone listening has more questions, feel free to reach out. And there's plenty of resources on my website. I'll send some your way, Beth. And so um, to people listening, I hope that some of you will join us in October in an extraordinarily beautiful place uh, for deep practice and relational practice, all in the spirit of Kalyanamita. Thank, Thank you, you so much. All right.